that was critical for me to be able to do that, just to get professional help and recognize that I need it. You know, that it's not, again, that it's not just a bad day or a bad week, but it's something that's a little bit deeper than that. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Gravity Podcast. Today, we are here with Eric Bean. Eric Bean, PhD, CMPC, is the Director of High Performance for Higher Echelon Incorporated and the PR and Outreach Division Head for the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. As a high performance and leadership consultant, he has worked with Army Special Forces, Navy SEALs, surgeons, business professionals, and athletes. After receiving his PhD, he worked with various soldier populations at Joint Base Lewis-Bacord, including Special Forces, Intact Infantry Squads, and Wounded Warriors. Dr. Bean is a certified mental performance consultant who works with individuals and teams to strengthen their ability to lead others, maximize team functioning, perform at an elite level under high-pressure conditions, and maintain consistency despite changing circumstances. He is also the host of the Coaching Through Stories podcast, which provides listeners with stories, research, and interviews that spark connection between people, concepts, thoughts, and behaviors. Eric, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you taking some time to share your story with our audience. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about kind of your childhood, your family dynamics, where you're from, anything that might be really um, important about those early years. Yeah, so um, I grew up in San Fernando Valley of of Los Angeles, and um, you know, for the most part, I I thought it was a pretty standard upbringing, aside from. You know, a couple of divorces. My mom and my dad divorced when I was six months, and uh, she remarried when I was a year and a half. So there was there was some chaos in the house. I was always the youngest, and you know there was quite a bit of of infighting in our family. and uh, And I always saw it as my role to not add to that. You know, I thought it was my job to kind of be the not necessarily the peacekeeper. But I'm not going to pile on if I see some stress and some anxiety and some fighting and some anger and and all that stuff. I'm going to try to calm it down, or at the very least, uh, just just not add to it. Let, let me just clarify there for a yeah. second. So that way of being, you recognize now as the way that you were at what age? How early on were you kind of that person? Five, maybe, maybe yeah. even younger. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think you know. Once I had a little bit of sense about myself, so probably about five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is this is interesting. I'm sorry, just to kind of jump in no. right away. I'll acknowledge I'm kind of a uh, armchair wannabe psychologist. Yeah, <laughs> um, are we all? And, yeah, yeah, this isn't. Uh, well, you actually have a PhD, so um, uh, you're, you're qualified to answer these questions. Where I just um, have this kind of curiosity. And, sure. This isn't about me, so I won't tell you my story, but I probably would have loved to have been a psychologist, but I didn't based on kind of, you know, my conditioning and for whatever sure. reasons. But, I, but I'm fascinated by this. And because you are uh, as accomplished as you are in the field, you know, I, I'm curious, what is your take on why that's the way that you were at such a young age? 
it does it have something to do even with like a pre-verbal trauma or uh, you know uh, something related to a divorce at six months? Is this your DNA and your wiring? You know, is there some thought about kind of at such a young age why you're this way? Yeah, I think it's certainly a combination of nature and nurture, right? I think those have to play, you have to look at both there. And 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 the reality of it is, is, you know, I was six months when my mom and dad got divorced. So I'm not aware. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm aware, but I'm not really that conscious of what's going on. My sister, on the other hand, was three at the time and and took it very uh personally and pretty much from then on acted out and saw me often as the cause of that divorce. You know, she had this great life, right? She was a single child with two loving parents. And, and then I come along and all of a sudden her whole world uh, changes. And so, and then, and then with, the, with the second marriage uh, and, and all that brought with that, because my, my stepdad had uh, children of his own. And, uh, and so that, there, was a, there was just a dynamic there that I think contributed to me and my approach to life and what I wanted to do. And, and really, you know, really what I think I, the way that I think I interpreted and internalized all that was going on was a little bit of, it sounds way worse than it is, but it's a little bit about, hey, my needs are secondary. Let's, I want peace and calm in this house. So I'm going to put whatever I want to the side in order to try to foster and get a little bit of peace and calm in this house. Because when you're four and you're five, what do you, you're, you're driven by your emotions. And so I want, when things are good, things are good. And I want things to be good more often. Mm-hmm. And so then I start to see what causes things to not be good, you mm-hmm. know, in our house and what causes things to be tense and, and stressful and all that. And then trying to figure out my role in that, uh, in that environment. And, you know, and then of course that perpetuates over time and, and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious, you know, what kind of success did you have uh, at that age and kind of finding some peace and calm? You know, were you able to actually create that? Th- that that to me is also fascinating because I believe we actually have way more influence over our environments than we sometimes think. And so, you know, what was your success like at that time? Moderate, maybe. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, there was there was there was bigger people than me that had a bigger voices and and used yeah. those bigger voices more often uh-huh. than I could. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I but I, I think I really like my sister used to call me a mama's boy, and and that was sort of my angle. I think was to just just be the good kid. Mm-hmm. Again, I was the youngest, and there was um, I had my own problems. You know, I had my own stresses and my own my own uh, outbursts and all that all that stuff. But my whole goal was really just to be the good kid. Mm-hmm. So at, at the very least, I don't think I did a great job of creating a lot of peace and calm, but I think I did a pretty good job of not adding to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. All right. So tell me a little bit more about um, kind of what starts to emerge for you as a kid. So one thing that really, really was important for me as a kid was athletics. And I had to, you know, I, I, I excelled at athletics to some degree at a young age and I wanted to be out playing. I thought that was sort of my space where I could be me and I could go do what I wanted to do. And so I really got into, into sports. I played every sport as a kid growing up and, um, and forged a, a, a bond with my stepdad. My, those parents later divorced as well, but I forged a bond with him through athletics and, um, 
And uh, so that became important for me as I as I grew older. And actually, one of the kind of interesting things I was thinking about it before our show today, I was thinking about my dad used to give me hypnosis tapes prior to uh, prior to my competitive tennis matches. And so I would listen, essentially they're visualization tapes. And I would listen to these tapes and it was, you know, see yourself hitting the serve, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And and I and I now realize that that was my really first introduction into the idea of the mental game and sports mm-hmm. psychology. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing what we can learn through sports. Um, you know, uh, in fact, I also am a tennis player. Grew up playing yeah. tennis, and have uh, a friend who coaches tennis, uh, professional tennis players here in Columbus that I, um, you know, I've had the chance to be around and really understand the specifics of sports psychology through the lens of tennis. So that's, that's a subject maybe we'll hop into a little bit here. Um, (laughs) But, but, you know, sports can be a great learning tool. I think we can learn from pretty much anything that we're doing. It's maybe actually there for us to learn. So, and, you know, and, Men, guys, you know, boys in particular, in our society, that seems to be the the way that you know most boys traditionally, maybe you know, in our generation, maybe even more, were kind of uh, expected to learn, right. you know, to right. be a certain way, you know, be a man. There was something about playing sports that was you know kind of encouraged or or pushed or you know accepted. Uh, I'm wondering just, you know, kind of how much of the wanting to please or keep peace or, you know, I think you said, you know, have things go well, how much of your kind of uh, athletic desire was was underneath about this, you know, um, wanting to look good or please? Yeah, quite a bit. You know, I, I wanted some attention. Right, mm-hmm. all the attention went to the squeaky wheels in the house, and uh, here I am, the good boy. You know, like that—that that idea, and so certainly that was a an avenue for me to get some attention from from my parents and my older brother at the time, and you know, definitely a definitely a motivator for me to put my effort in and and try to get better and and uh, you know pursue it in some in some significant way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and yet, it also sounds like that was something that you actually felt was really you too. It wasn't right. just about other people, that this was a, a way of self-expression that actually felt fun and a part of who you actually were too. Yeah. And, and I also recognize that like a lot of my, all the work that I did to, to control my emotions at home, to not let myself out, to, not, to essentially put others first, Kind of came out aggressively in athletics. You know, I got kicked mm-hmm. out of quite a few gyms. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in, in youth basketball and and uh, you know, arguing with the ref and so on and so forth. Because I think it was just a way for me to feel a little free to express myself fully and be be completely out there and and open, uh, where I didn't feel that I had as much ability to do that at home. You know, I'm also curious about these tapes. The you know, kind of positive psychology, yeah. hypnosis. Yeah. You know, I also found myself gravitating. Uh, for me, I, I think I found it. Um, it wasn't really given to me. I don't know. It feels like maybe it was given to me, but not by, you know, a parent. I, I found self-help books on tape. 
you know, I, at a young age, went into therapy when my parents got divorced and liked it. You know, this was part of kind of my interest that was inherently in me for whatever reason. You know, a lot of people might get a hypnosis tape from their dad, you know, as a teenager, you know, in their youth and say like, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. You know, what are you doing? I'm not doing that. You seem to, uh, you know, take to it. Is that true? Yeah, the, the the giant teenage eye roll, I think, was still there. And then, uh, you know, and he said, well, just put it on as you're going to sleep. And so I, it was sort of a, a kind of a safe space to be able to do that. And and he had recognized that, that uh, my emotions were affecting my performance. And mm-hmm. so that was his way of kind of saying, hey, here's an avenue for you to be able to perform the way you want to perform and get a little bit of control over your emotions. That was, I thought that was a great way. Um, and and we didn't really have any conversations about it other than hey you got to be better at controlling your emotions, and mm-hmm. so for me it was it was part of my buy in was hey this can help me win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you saw that this could work. Yeah. This could be helpful. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so what happens? Tell me a little bit more about kind of how you continued down your your path as a as a teenager or kid. Yeah. So um, I had a pretty long and rich history of putting others before me. And I was often the the guy that people would come to with some challenges, you know, and I never was super comfortable expressing my challenges or what was going on with me, but I was very comfortable in supporting others working through their stuff. And, uh, and I found an ability to do that that was that was fairly strong. So when I got to college, it's probably not all that surprising, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I hadn't spent a whole lot of time thinking about me and what I wanted. My first um, major was aerospace engineering. And uh, a lot of my friends joked that that was the first one on the list. You know, So I, I, I started with that. I didn't really like that. Eventually, I got into psychology. I, I liked that a lot because it was about understanding people. It was about helping people. The biggest challenge that I had with psychology was that it, at the time, it was more focused on what's wrong with people and how do we get them back to average. And it just didn't quite excite me uh, as much as I was hoping it would. And then I was you know, flipping through the course catalog my junior year of college and or prior to my junior year of college and came across a class called Psychosocial Aspects of Sport and Exercise, a sport and physical activity with Dr. Callahan. And I read the course description. I said, this is exactly what I want to do. Mm, isn't that interesting? And, yeah, it's funny how you know we make these decisions, and you know I think depending on kind of what your belief system is. I mean, you know, you joked about you know the aerospace being the first on the list, <laughs> but like, like I'm just curious for whatever reason. I don't know why this is piquing my interest, but like, why did you pick aerospace? Like, what was it about that that had you even kind of starting to think that might be the direction you wanted to go to begin with? I was good at math and science and uh, you know, a little bit of a traditional family. Get a, get a good steady job. Engineering was like a good steady mm-hmm. job kind of idea. And I thought it'd be neat to build aircraft and work in that, in that capacity. And then I, I realized that relatively quickly that it, that it just wasn't... It just didn't excite me as the way I, the way I wanted it to. And it was, mm-hmm. I wasn't, didn't feel like I was with my people when I, mm-hmm. when I got into the, to that programming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, then on the other hand, you find something that you are interested in and you see this, you know, class and it, and, and it really hits home for you. 
you know, like I said before, I, I had a similar experience. I was not engaged in my academics. I, right. you know, would disassociate. I had, you know, some trauma when I was a kid and just never really found myself um, interested or even with the skill set to listen and uh, learn in an academic environment. There were some classes along the way, and I had a a psych class in particular in college that really caught my attention. Mm. But I didn't have the courage, the strength, the conditioning to listen to myself and honor myself. I continue to go down that path of looking good and doing what I thought I was supposed to do, what men were supposed to do, what, you know, right. my, my kind of programming was, what do you attribute your kind of ability or willingness, or I don't know what it is that had you see that and then act on it and, and have the confidence to go down that path. Prior to that moment, I had um, some, pretty dark days for me and was pretty depressed and pretty down and and uh, had not really... Like I said, I had just a, a long and rich history of putting others before me and to, to, to a significant cost to myself and to my well-being. So I, I was... I, there was a pretty significant moment in my life where I was at a very low point. I was able to get through that actually at that time, called my sister and and she helped me through it and and I got through it and that served as a bit of a, a a wake up call to say hey this is you know no one else is living this life but me i'm living my life i've got to live my life and mm-hmm. and this is the opportunity to do that and and you know it wasn't this like big moment this big flash of light and like here i am okay i'm ready to live my own life it was just sort of that that you know a series of events that led to me being open to the possibility of asking what i want and then listening mm-hmm. to what i want and then I read that course description after, you know, like I said, I wasn't thrilled with with general psychology. And I read that course description and it just absolutely lit me up because it married mm-hmm. two things that I had a tremendous passion for. It married my love of sport and of helping people be great. I wasn't mm-hmm. too enthralled, you know, I wasn't enthralled with helping people be average or get back to quote unquote normal. I wanted to help people be great. And I, and I just, I, I'm, I feel incredibly fortunate that I just read that course description, that I landed on that page and then committed to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm only asking this not to pry, but because I have teenage kids and kids in college and I'm seeing kind of their friend groups and just this kind of generation, whether it's related to COVID or what other other circumstances, experiencing depression and uh, really, you know, kind of having some dark days of their own, uh, you know, at a time that's supposed to be pretty fun. But I think it's 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 probably always been that way and just not talked about as much. Maybe it's um, more acceptable to to share today, which is a good thing. Or maybe it's actually you know both are true that more people are actually experiencing depression than than they did in the past. But but is there anything more that you can share about kind of the dark period that might be helpful for our audience. And then also kind of what it was, you, you said it wasn't some sort of like massive like moment, but it, it really turns out to be a pretty important moment. What was it that kind of helped you move through that time? 
Yeah, that was that was one of few times in my life that that I saw professional help, and I went and mm-hmm. saw a counselor, and uh, you know, because I knew it was because it had gotten so dark that it was kind of beyond just the everyday blues, you know, or 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 just kind of the bad thoughts. It had gotten pretty dark, and so I went and saw professional help, and that was absolutely critical for me to build some self awareness about how I see the world and the framework through which I view the world, and then what what um what frameworks are really supporting me and what are kind of hindering me and uh you know i think i think that was that was critical for me to be able to do that just to get professional help and recognize that i need it you know that it's not again that it's not just a bad day or a bad week but it's something that's a little bit deeper than that Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um you take this class, you know, yeah. uh tell me, where where do you go from there? Well, I was in the instructor's office uh, pretty much daily. And then eventually he pawned me off on his uh okay. his um uh graduate student, Dr. Mike Voigt. And then I spent pretty much every day with him or every day that I could with him, learning about the field of sports psychology. I went on to get my master's. He he advised me to go get my master's from one of the greatest of all time, Ken Revisa, uh, at Cal State Fullerton. Then uh, I learn a little bit about the craft there and get a little bit better and and uh, get more comfortable in my own skin. And then I went to get my PhD at Michigan State uh, in sports psychology. Do you want me to just keep going like through? Yeah, up to now? sure. Yeah, bring yeah, us to yeah. Now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, or pause along the way if there's something that you know really jumps out. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, I, I, after my master's, I went to get my PhD at Michigan State uh, from Dan Gould in, in sports psychology, and and the whole idea along the way was really to work in athletics. Was really to work because I again, I love sport. I love the idea of helping people great, be great. I love helping people perform on on the stage that they want to perform on and at the level that they want to perform at. And I had some experiences along the way that really exposed the mental game to me and exposed the power of the mental game. And so while I was at Michigan State, a professional colleague reached out to me and, and said, hey, do you want to come work for the Army? There's a program that's, that we're getting going in the Army that's essentially mental skills training for soldiers. So instead of the you know, football field, it's the battlefield. And how do we help them perform to their ability under obviously immense pressure and stress and, and, uh, and do so in a way that uh, you know, is aligned with the mission and all that? And I really loved that opportunity. I, I loved that idea of one being able to serve those that serve, and uh, so that was the mission and purpose of the work was really a powerful driver for me to get into that work with with military professionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what was that like to kind of you know be a non military guy, but now you're immersed in the in the military and applying your training to a different field of a non-sports field. I mean, tell me, you know, what was that experience like or what is it like still? I, I believe you're still involved, right? No, so I, I've, I've moved on from working uh, directly with the military. We do some consulting with companies that work with military. I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But that, that experience was phenomenal. I mean, I learned a ton and I learned a lot about how, you know, it's, it, to me, it was... It's not, there's not just a performance. That was kind of the big difference was that it's like everything's a performance. We're, we're constantly mm-hmm. regularly performing. 
And so it was really eye-opening in that in that concept that there's not like a game that we're playing for. There's not a, you know, a championship that we're trying to get and and then be off for the summer or whatever it is. It was it was day in and day out. These these men and women are working hard to master their craft, whatever it was in in the in the military profession. And then during that time, I was exposed to or or asked to come and work with surgeons. And so that was brand new for me. That was something that was really exciting for me was that it's, hey, this is another way to kind of apply the mental game concepts that I've been learning through sports psychology and apply it to a different performance domain. And, and surgery is another one of those kind of high stress, high pressure situations that you know, can have some pretty significant consequences if, it, if the performance isn't up to par, isn't what we want it to be. And so that was a, that was a thrilling time was working with that, with that uh, population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm curious, you know, uh, in your bio, it mentions that you've worked with all kinds of high performers, you know, from Navy SEALs to surgeons and business professionals and athletes. What What's the kind of through line at this stage, you know, as you're kind of starting to work with a variety of types of performers? Are, are there some themes that are kind of emerging for you in the work that seem to translate kind of across sectors or industries? The mental game influences every performance. I mean, that's, that's, that's the main through line is that everybody is affected by anxiety, by stress, by pressure to some degree on a, on a psychological or cognitive level. And so that's, that's one of the things that I think is really not often talked about enough in, in whatever performance domain that you're in, whether it's business, whether it's dance, whether it's sport, the mind is going to have a role in how well you perform and how consistently you perform at that level. So that's definitely one through line. The other is that at this level, what, what I see is that, you know, whether it's with the Navy SEALs, business professionals, surgeons, sports, elite athletics, doesn't matter. Everybody is trying to perform at or near their best as often as possible. And they recognize that they can't take any part of their craft for granted. So, you know, business professionals, I think for a long time had really put the focus outwardly. Okay, what do, what do we need to do? Who do we need to talk to? How do we need to get this sale? Whatever it is. And are starting to recognize that, hey, I, in order for me to be at the top of my game, I've got to look inward a little bit and start to think about you know, what, what's the mindset that's going to lead me to optimal performance on a regular, consistent basis? You know, instead of sort of putting it outward like, oh, I didn't, I didn't say this or I didn't make that sale because of X. Now it's looking at, hey, wh- what role did I have in that? What was, what was my mental game going into that or my mindset going into that? So I, I think to me, that's something that, that is no longer really being taken for granted. The mental game is no longer being taken for granted. That's why I think you see like executive coaching and coaching the field of coaching really taking off more and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, the mind game, the mental uh, health side of things, uh, I agree with you, is definitely being more broadly accepting, accepted as a added value. So it's not like um, maybe what it used to be, which is like, oh, yeah, I get it. You've got some problems and we need to right, you right. Know, make sure that you're getting everything you need because we care about the whole person. But now um, there's some people that are really starting to 
see in places that you wouldn't expect them to actually see this. Um, or historically, they wouldn't have, uh, you know, kind of gone this direction. They're saying, oh, um, kind of like you did as an athlete, I can get better results by doing this, mm. right? There's some kind of results aspect to it. But but I guess, you know, beyond knowing that or even, you know, sort of believing it, what then what? What do you do? How do you actually... Uh, work with individuals. You know, can you sh- shed a little light on on kind of your approach, your technique? You know, I've seen even just with these tennis players and with myself, it's I've done a lot of work, and it's still hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, this can go all the way back. It's part of the reason I like to start there with the podcast. You know, my belief is that you know, we start getting conditioned at a very, very young age. And depending on what that is, there could be a lot to unwind to be able to walk onto the tennis court and do it with a sense of freedom and, and you know, the kind of mindset that's necessary to really perform at a high level. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, so for me, the way that I approach it is you have to have that self-awareness. You have to have an understanding of what that, maybe that early conditioning or whatever it is, how that drives your mental framework. How do you see the world that you work in or, or that you live in or that you perform in? What's the lens through which you're seeing the world? And that lens through which you see the world is coloring how you're going to respond to situations and how you're going to react to situations. So I used to be the guy who would come in and say, what's going on? What do you need help with? What are you working on? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with confidence or I'm struggling with anxiety or stress or pressure or whatever. And I'd say, okay, here's a skill. Here's a skill. Here's a skill. You know, Take three of these and call me in the morning, right? And, and I recognized that that would work for a very brief period of time. They would have, mm-hmm. It would have some positive effect, but then they'd come back in with the same problem, the same challenge. My confidence isn't where I want it to be. I'm struggling with stress, anxiety, whatever it is. And so I started to realize, okay, we've got to go a little deeper. It's not just the skill. It's not just the behavior of refocusing or, or visualization or whatever it is, or positive self-talk, whatever it is. We have to dig a little deeper. So I have to build self-awareness. So whenever I work with anybody, we start with quite a bit of time spent on building self-awareness. What are your patterns? What are your habits? What are your, you know, of thinking, of emotions, of, of, uh, of, of behavior? What's what's your philosophy? How do you how do you view your your life? What's your mental framework? From there, we can start to recognize that that the way that I see the world frames how I how I react and respond, and then it sends certain messages. I've got stories in my mind and in my life that say that say this is how you, how you get successful. This is what failure looks like. So on and so forth. And then we start to say, okay, are these messages still supporting you? Or are these messages interfering with the way that you want to perform and, and live? And can we rewrite some of these messages? Mm. So for example, a, a, a gentleman that I worked with essentially had a story and a message that, um, that he, he'll, he'll never be good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a common one that we hear, that, that I'll never yeah. be good enough. And yeah. so what did that lead him to do? Well, one of the things that it led him to do that actually quite served, served him quite well was it made him work incredibly hard in medical school, in school, and then in medical school, and so on, and, and postdocs, and all that stuff. And it worked incredibly hard. But now, where it's leaving him feeling is that he's still not enough. 
that he will mm. never be enough. No matter how much he accomplishes, he'll never be enough. And so we've got to recognize like, okay, that framework served you in a lot of ways, but it's not serving you going forward. Can we let it go? Can we rewrite it? Mm-hmm. And then what does that process look like? Then from there, we start to build off of this foundation of strong self-awareness and we get to some self-regulation, mm. right? So self-regulation for you might look different than it does for me based off of our frameworks. Mm-hmm. Let me pause you there for a yeah, second. I'd like to talk about the regulation piece. I just want to make sure I hear the awareness piece and that the audience gets to hear this clearly because, you know, I'm sitting here listening to you and one of the things that I'm, and I totally agree. I mean, it does all start with that awareness and, you know, it just makes sense. If you're not aware, then how do you even know there's a problem other than maybe it's a feeling, but, you know, if you don't kind of chase what's underneath the feeling, you're probably not going to ever really find a way to wake up to what's happening. Precisely. And so, you know, what I'm hearing you say you do is you have to kind of look at your beliefs and really look at your stories and the events that have happened in your life to that, that you're still letting influence how you're being. And once you kind of look at all of that, then it can kind of come up and you can recognize it when it's happening. And that's really what it means to be aware. Did I hear that right? Or am I butchering it? You know, I'm just kind no, of you've got spitting back on. to you what I, what I heard. You've got, it, yeah. you've got it spot on. So now I recognize that my anxiety about this game that I'm about to play or this performance I'm about to give is, is less about the situation specifically. And it's more about the messaging or the core beliefs that I have. And it's manifesting mm-hmm. as anxiety in the moment. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Okay. So let's go to the regulation piece. So the, the regulation piece then I think is from that, from that place of awareness, I can say to myself, okay, what am I really afraid of here? Mm-hmm. Right? So I might, be, I might be feeling nervous about this event and, I'm, and what am I really afraid of? And then having that ability to make some connections to, okay, you know what? This fear is really based off of an old story. Mm-hmm. I actually, when I really think about it, I actually have quite a bit of confidence in about what I'm about to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the fear is so powerful because that old story is so deep. And that habit has been around for so long, right? That when I enter into an event like this, I get afraid. Yeah. And, and so, so now the regulation is really based off of not so much the emotion or the physiological response. Of course, we've got to address that. Of course, we've got to do some work on that as well. But it's also built around and based on where that is generating from and where, whether or not that is a, uh, a, a truthful place or something that is still relevant today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. You know, I think, again, for kind of the masses, sometimes some of the language can be a little intimidating. But in reality, what I'm hearing you say, regulation is really being aware that you're not you're out of alignment exactly. based on an old story and you're coming back to something that really feels more true if you're actually exactly. being honest with yourself right and 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 it sounds simple it's really not maybe maybe you know i've kind of i like the language you know it's it's simple but not easy that's yeah, right complex. Yeah, simplex. That's good too. I like that. Because, you know, that 
can be so ingrained in the body, you know, that you are so used to or so attached to that other way of being that even though you might know some part of you that that's actually not who you are. And really, when you're at your best, that's not who you are. And you don't even believe that's who you are. But living, changing to live a different way, to be a different way, to change your state of being, it, it is really hard. Yeah, it's yeah. It, and it takes like think about it this way. That's a well-worn neural pathway that 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 has been reinforced time and time and time and time again to the mm-hmm. point where it's habitual and it's it's happening in the subconscious. Like you're not thinking about it. You're not you know when when you step back and are able to see it for what it is, you can say mm, that's not really a, a quote logical feeling in this moment. And so mm-hmm. that reprogramming, if you will, I, I don't love that term, but a little bit of it is reprogramming is it takes some time because mm-hmm. we've got to build some new habits. We've mm-hmm. got to build some new habits of responding. It's not just enough to just think about it. I've got to get practice and experience in living it, in doing it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and when we can do that and do that more and more, we can build new habits that are more supportive to what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I had this experience recently in this kind of download that... I was kind of looking at through a tennis lens, but I, I think it's probably maybe true in no matter anything that we're doing, which is that to let go of the outcome is the, and just to play or be and and not worry about the win or the loss is actually the way to unlock more wins. Um, and it so it might sound like it's a little still stuck on winning, but that you might have a lot more success when you stop focusing on the end prize. Is that true? Is that part of what you're working on? Is that a part of this process? There was a, uh, a um, an episode of Ted Lasso. I think it was one of the first season episodes, and and uh, you know he was kind of just getting used to coaching in professional athletics and. And I think he said something to the effect of, you know, hey, winning doesn't matter. And, and Coach Beard said, no, these are professionals. Winning matters. And so one thing that I try and work on and, and help people understand is I'm never going to take away winning from you. I don't want you to never think about winning. But we've got to put it in its right place. And so if we're constantly focused on winning, I think that's going to detract from our ability to be focused on the processes that are going to lead to you winning or give you the best opportunity to win. So one thing that I do and help people do is, is help them work on meaning of winning. What might me- winning indicate you or, or mean for you? And sometimes that means you know we're, we're kind of resizing it a little bit. And then really shifting their focus on, okay, what, what's going to lead to you winning? Okay, got it. We got a, lo- a nice list. All right. Then within that list, what do we have direct control over? And then what do we need to do to put our focus and attention and energy directly on and consistently on those things that we have direct control over? Mm-hmm. The more that we can do that, the more that we put ourselves in a position to win. So I, I want to shift a focus away from winning, but I don't want to take winning away or say that it's meaningless or say that it doesn't matter. You know, I, I want to help people redefine or, or, or define and get clarity on what winning means to them. And put that in a healthy perspective if needed. 
and then really get them to focus on the processes that are going to lead to you winning. Yeah, that that sounds right. I mean, especially the lasso example, right? You know, yeah. to expect that it's going to be eliminated from the equation with professionals, especially. Good luck. So I like I like the kind of reframe, you know, putting it in its proper size and and really looking at what's going to lead to that. And and then you are really changing the focus to the the action yeah. um, that you think will end up giving you the result. Okay, tell me a little bit about you know I mean maybe we're doing this right now, but um, tell me a little bit about kind of how you landed as you know director of of high performance for higher echelon your current work tell me a little bit about kind of how you landed there and um anything else about you know what it is that you do yeah yeah so i essentially when i started to realize when i was working with the with the army and then i worked with the surgeons is i started to realize you know this skill set goes beyond just athletics obviously and and can be adapted and applied to a lot of different performance domains so after my work with um, the army i went down i'm down to san diego which is where i live now to work with the navy seals again applying that idea of you know mental performance coaching for high performers and in that case tactical athletes but when i was there a lot of my work was with the cadre and with the leadership on how they can be better at coaching or assessing mental toughness and mental fitness. After that, I went internal to UCSD Health as an internal leadership consultant. And so there I was really kind of serving as a coach and a consultant for various populations within the healthcare system. And then got an opportunity to work with Higher Echelon as, as a, essentially what I do as an executive coach. That's a large part of my job. I do a lot of coaching with business professionals. And then I do leadership development from the framework of high-performance psychology and, and sports psychology. And so I'll do workshops and keynotes and different events in that regard. So that's kind of my path. It was from this idea of just sport to, you know, okay, uh, tactical athletes, you know, uh, and to more broader performance domains. And then now into this idea of, uh, of executive coaching and leadership development. Mm-hmm. And talk a little bit, you mentioned this earlier about the kind of emergence of coaching. Um, I work with a coach that I've been working with for the last 13, 12, 13 years. Yeah. And uh, prior to that, I thought coaches were for sports. I, I literally had no idea coaching was a thing. I knew that there was therapists and, and psychologists, psychiatrists. Coaching was a new thing to me at that point. It's been monumentally impactful for me. And I continue to work with that coach. I also am in therapy and and work with credentialed therapists. Talk to me a little bit about kind of the emergence of coaching. I mean, you're a PhD. So, you know, you you have the credentials to treat and and you kind of describe yourself um, in part at least as a coach, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the differences and you know maybe some of the benefits, pros and cons to the coaching world. Yeah. I think generally we're not great at uh, holding up a mirror and, and then looking at our flaws and addressing our flaws in a, in a productive and, and positive way. Um, so I think that's something where a professional can, can serve us in, in doing so. 
psychotherapy, you know, differs from coaching quite a bit. Generally, in that one, you have to be licensed. You have to be licensed to be a, a psychotherapist. You know, coaching is a little bit more of the Wild West right now. There is some some efforts by like International Coach Federation to do a better job of legitimizing and uh, certifying coaches, and and I think they're doing a wonderful job at, at that. But psychotherapy is is often about not always, but it's often about looking in the past and and processing either past trauma or emotional dysfunction or challenges in one's life as a way to kind of release that that hold that those experiences have had on you in order to move forward. Coaching generally is is working with a healthy population. So they're working with people that uh, don't have dysfunction or significant dysfunction in an effort to move forward, to move toward goals. So the focus for coaching is really future focused. Where are you now and where do you want to go? And it's less about processing the past. I do that sometimes only so much as it helps us move forward. If I really feel that like that mental framework is holding you back from moving forward, then we've got to process that. We've got to get some clarity on that. A little less about the why, but just more of the what. What is your mental framework right now? And then, and then how do we move forward? Is that hindering or, or helping you? So I think coaching is... The, the benefit of coaching to me is really... And I, I have a coach myself. The benefit of coaching to me is really being able to have somebody else hold up a mirror, hold you accountable or help, hold you, help you hold yourself accountable, and then give you some tools and techniques to, to move towards the goals that, that you want that you haven't been able to move towards yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering what you recommend for people because I think you know, what you were getting at with the credential piece is you know, there's some, um, from my standpoint... I think to some degree, it gives a individual more freedom to be able to engage with their client without having to be kind of governed by a, a, a framework. You know, there's a, you know, you said Wild West and there is some like, you can say things that maybe you couldn't say if you were working for a practice, right? Um, really good. Yep. Right. You can you can share your own experiences, maybe differently. You can you can actually tell them what you think. You know, maybe there's things you know, and and maybe I'm doing a bad job of explaining the differences. But but on the other hand, that also can kind of make anybody a coach, and I think there's some danger in that too. So I'm wondering. What path do you see people having going down, having success, and and really making a difference for others as a coach? And the other kind of second piece of this I'm curious about is how much experience, life experience, or experience in in the working world, or I don't know, how many kind of miles do you need to have on your tires? before you think somebody's qualified or could somebody just start right into this field you know at a young age and be impactful coaching is really it, it's not about the coach's agenda coaching is about the individual that's in front of them and their agenda and the art of coaching the art and science of coaching is about asking the right questions and guiding them in the right way so that they figure out the the answer that they need to take to move forward Consulting, on the other hand, is about often about having the right answer and having the experience and having the, the, the knowledge to give advice and to tell them what they should be doing. 
So for example, if I want to get better at Excel spreadsheets, I want to hire an Excel spreadsheet consultant to come in and teach me what to do and show me how to do it. Right. Whereas if I wanted to, you know, whereas a coach is less about coming in and telling you what to do, their job is more about coming in and asking the right questions and helping you discover what you need to do and then being that support and guide so that you follow through on that. So for somebody to go and become a coach, I think it's less about the experience. I think the experience matters because sometimes I'll wear different hats. You know, with my background as a certified mental performance consultant, I, I have that knowledge and that experience in the field of sports psychology and mental performance coaching to offer some of that research and, and direction when it comes to techniques or strategies and offer some advice. But the coaching hat that I wear is, is less about giving answers and more about helping that other person discover the answer for themselves. So the path that someone might take would be, I would encourage them to, if you're really interested in sports psychology, performance psychology, uh, look at the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, ASP, and become a certified mental performance consultant. Or if it's coaching for you, if that is more of an interest to you, then look at International Coach Federation and become a certified coach through that, uh, through that pathway. There's a number of different pathways to do so. So I think part of it is just understanding that coaching is less about like giving answers and more about guiding and help and partnering with the person to help them discover their, the answers that, uh, that are going to best suit them. Eric, I could go on for uh, days with you. This is fascinating yeah. and I love what you're doing. You just want to maybe land the plane, anything that you, know, you feel is really important for the audience to hear as we start to wrap up. One thing that I, I think is important, you know, you you give me some some questions ahead of time and I just wanted to address it. I know we sort of touched on it briefly, but I, I just want to talk about it uh, a little bit more is that idea of mental health in the workplace and that that's been a really hot topic right now and something that's been talked about a lot. And and we're seeing it. Um, I was interviewed for, um, you know, about Naomi Osaka a couple of times and we saw the Simone Biles situation at the Olympics and and all that. And I think it's important that people recognize when it comes to mental health that it's more about it's more than just taking a, a break here and there or taking a long vacation to recover or you know waiting for the weekend and all that stuff. I think there's a couple levels of engagement that people can do to take control of their mental health, and one of them is doing the work on getting clarity on your purpose and what gives you meaning uh, at work. And then from there, it's taking a look at your habits and behaviors. What are the habits and behaviors that you're engaging in that support or hinder uh, your mental well-being? Are you prioritizing sleep? Are you eating right? Are you engaging in activities at work and at, at, at outside of work that generate positive emotions? And then from there, I think it's kind of the mental skills in the moment to be able to refocus, to be able to reframe, to be able to kind of center yourself, take a breath, whatever it needs to be. So it's not just this reaction to what's going on in the workplace. It's, it's being deliberate and intentional about taking control of your mental health and your mental well-being. And then also from there, recognizing that doing all that might not be enough. And from there, hey, seek support, seek professional support if you, if you can, or take a hard look at, at your work environment and, and recognize that, hey, I've done a lot of the work on myself and this work environment still isn't doing what I needed to do for my mental well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. It is really seeming to become more prevalent and people do need to know the importance of taking action, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, 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 you know, 
it can be hard to do. And I acknowledge that it can be harder for some than others. But at the end of the day, it's not going to fix itself. You've got to be in action. And, um, you know, I learned through my coach, baby steps, you know, is kind of what we say, like, just start somewhere. You don't have to figure it all out, you know, at one time. It's going to take a while, just, you know, one step after the next. Yeah. Yep. I love that. I love that. And I think that's, that's sometimes overlooked the power of, of a 1% gain. How can I get just a little bit better? And then build off of that and build off of that. And, and that can make all the difference. Yeah. Great. Eric, thank you. I appreciate you sharing your story with the audience today, with me. And uh, love what you're doing. And we'll make sure that uh, everybody knows how to find you in the notes. But um, yeah, again, thanks so much. And uh, I don't know if there's any, any final thoughts you want to share. That's it. I appreciate you having me on and, and all the work that you're doing to... Uh, to get people to better understand coaching and the power of coaching and, uh, and, and all that. So thank you for being vulnerable and open and uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman on Twitter at bkaufman125 and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.